1: Broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once
0: again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. I'm Mark Levin. Sounds good, boys. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. We had a little technical problem, but we don't anymore. All right, I wasn't going to start with this. I want to talk tonight about the press, about climate change, but first now we're going to start with the debt. It doesn't matter who the president is. It doesn't matter which party controls Congress. The fact is that when those in charge of spending and borrowing, and taxing. Do what's about to be done to the American people. It's unconscionable. Spending is completely out of control, and we simply do not have any adults who want to do anything about it because it's much easier politically to just keep spending. As Mitch McConnell once said, and I paraphrase, you don't lose votes by spending. That's the Republican majority leader of the Senate. Now, we used to at least have fiscal conservatives. There are no more fiscal conservatives, maybe a handful. But the Republican Party today does not stand for fiscal responsibility. Therefore, nobody does. People can call me well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't care. I have kids and grandkids too. I care about the future of this kind. This is the most selfish act one generation can do to the next. To impose on generations yet born this massive debt because we want health care for all and we want free college and we want more of this and more of that and so forth and so on is unacceptable. It's unacceptable. What a bunch of punks we've become this generation. I'm not kidding. You know, we like to talk about millennials. You know, those damn millennials, we're doing this. And the generation before us did this. We're told there's nothing we can do about it. What do you mean there's nothing we can do about it? And then we have a Democrat party that wants to quadruple what's taking place while the Republican Party's doubling what's taking place. We sent people to Congress during the Tea Party Revolution who are now voting for massive spending and massive debt. Why? I'll tell you why. Because politically, this is what I'm going to tell you. They don't want to shut down the government. And you have a Treasury Secretary who's a Liberal Democrat who's already saying we don't want to default. There would be no default. But let me tell you something. One day there will be a default. One day there will be a default. But it'll be a different kind of default. It'll be one completely out of our control when the economy crumbles. There'll be no health care. There'll be no pensions. There'll be no minimum wage. There'll be no property rights. It'll all go up in a puff of smoke. And then you have these, these hucksters on TV and radio. You know, they always warn us about this, but none of it happens. Well, look at history. It has happened. Just because our economy is so big, it takes time. But the laws of economics, as I've said a thousand times, are like the laws of physics. They don't change. I don't care how many statutes are passed. I don't care how many proposals are made. How many claims about redistributing wealth take place. We simply can't produce enough to keep up with this. Now there's a piece at National Review Online, the guy has it right. He's a, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, Brian Rydell. And he says in part, this deal that they've not come up with, that the president announces he's going to sign would raise the discretionary spending cap by $320 billion. Forget about entitlements. They're completely out of control. They're talking about the discretionary part. By $320 billion over two years. And by the way, still hasn't bought us a wall on the southern border. Still hasn't bought us protection from illegal aliens coming into this country. It's all the priorities of the left. $320 billion over two years and offset less than one quarter of those costs. And even the one quarter offset is to take place over the period of 10 years. It'll never happen. This was negotiated with the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and McConnell and Schumer and Pelosi. And Kevin McCarthy's out there tooting his horn. The budget deal would essentially repeal the final two years of the 2011 Budget Control Act and raise the baseline for future discretionary spending by nearly $2 trillion over a decade. This was the crown jewel of the Tea Party Congress. The decade-long shredding of these hard-fought budget constraints mirrors the shredding of Republican credibility on fiscal responsibility. They have none. They're disgusting. They're a disgrace. The story begins a decade ago when a budget deficit that had declined to a modest $161 billion by 2007 was hit with the Great Recession. While recessions always automatically raise budget deficits, fewer tax revenues, more unemployment, welfare costs, President Bush, President Obama, and both parties in Congress deepened the red ink with the TARP bailouts. Remember that? Which were initially expected to cost $700 billion, as well as Obama's nearly $1 trillion stimulus law, law, which failed to rescue the economy even by the White House's own metrics. So they went on a spending spree and a bailout spree. By 2009, the deficit had exceeded $1 trillion for the first time. Not the overall debt. Deficit applies to the year. $1 trillion for the first time. It reached $1.4 trillion. Then you can remember CNBC's Rick Santelli stood on the floor of the Chicago Merck exchange, February 19, 2009, called for a Tea Party movement. Then, of course, my book, Liberty and Tyranny, came out two, three weeks later. And we had a revolution, a grassroots revolution. The American people had had enough. And then we had the Obamacare entitlement on top of all that. So the Republicans captured the House in 2010 with a stunning 63-seat pickup and also picked up seven Senate seats. The new majority quickly banned pork barrel earmarks, trimmed the 2011 appropriations bill that had been carried over from the previous year. The House then rallied around a budget produced by House Budget Committee Chairman, then Paul Ryan, that would gradually eliminate the deficit by converting Medicare to a premium support model, repealing Obamacare and cutting other spending. And while Senate Democrats blocked the reforms, The need to raise the debt limit over the summer gave House Republicans unique leverage to force policy concessions from Obama and the Senate Democrats. The the deficit-obsessed Republicans expressed a willingness to risk defaulting on national debt, interest payments, in order to force spending cuts. And after months of intense negotiations, we got the Budget Control Act. It capped discretionary spending through 2021. Saving $2.1 trillion. $2.1 trillion over a decade. And that was that. Obama and the Senate Democrats, after that, could easily block House Republican spending reforms. The 2012 election of Obama then cost the Tea Party GOP some of the momentum it had acquired two years earlier. And then in 2013, Congressional Republicans were beginning to complain about the tight discretionary spending limits brought on by the law that was passed by the Tea Party Congress. We had our defense folks upset about the caps. They showed a willingness to give Democrats domestic spending hikes in return for defense hikes. The result was a deal negotiated between the House and Senate Budget Committees, Ryan and Patty Murray, that increased discretionary spending. Once the 2014 and 2015 spending caps were raised, there was no way lawmakers would ratchet spending back to the cap levels in 2016. So two years later, another Ryan Murray deal raised the 2016-2017 spending caps by combined $80 billion, once again with 10 years of somewhat gimmicky mandatory spending offsets, which never happened. During that period, Senate Republicans tried again to use a looming budget deadline to force major budget concessions from President Obama. Led by Ted Cruz, the Republicans shut down the government in October 2013 to pressure Obama into repealing Obamacare before it could be fully implemented. You'll recall, Cruz came under withering attack by Republicans, by Karl Roe, by McConnell. The election of President Trump was supposed to help bring these costs under control. But here we are. 2017 Pew poll, here's part of the problem, showed that just 15% of Republicans supported paring back the escalating costs of Medicare and Social Security to bring down the deficit. There is no desire, none, to cut spending. None. There's no pressure on Congress to cut spending. None. There's no rational discussion about this in the media. It'll all be blamed on Trump. It should be blamed on all of them, quite frankly. Both parties, all leaders. Both parties, all leaders. There is no Budget Control Act anymore. There's no budget control anymore. Right now, the fiscal operating debt is $22 trillion and massively expanding. The unfunded liability debt is over $250 trillion. They don't even tell you about that. All they ever do is talk about the $22 trillion fiscal operating debt. They never tell you about the unfunded liabilities. They complain, you know, we can't control entitlements. Then you ought to ask them. Well, what does that contribute to the debt? They don't want to talk about it because they might have to do something about it. So when you add the $22 trillion, and let's just round it off to $220 trillion, it's much higher in unfunded liabilities. That means each and every one of you owes about $700,000 in debt. Babies, teenagers, senior citizens, about $700,000 each. It's about sixty eight thousand dollars if you just consider fiscal operating debt. But we're into all of it. There isn't just a fiscal operating debt. There's an unfunded liabilities debt. Then we have the Democrats running off and saying, College for all, how are you gonna pay for it? Oh, you know, just tax the rich. Healthcare for all, well, how are you gonna yeah, well just tax the rich? And then the Republicans, at least they used to give lip service to controlling spending, don't even give lip service anymore. I want you to look at your children and grandchildren. I want you to think about 50 years from now, just 50 years from now. We talk about Apollo 11, right? 50 years ago. Look around you, because 50 years from now, this country's not going to be anything like it is today. I'll be gone Many of us will be gone, but your children and grandchildren will be here in future generations. And I am telling you that what we are doing to our children and grandchildren and generations yet born is going to destroy them. This is going to destroy them. All this crap about Mueller, Russia collusion, all these lies, the focus of the media. Unfortunately, mark my words, this will destroy the country from within. China will be on the rise. Other countries will be on the rise. Or we destroy ourselves from within because we're too damn selfish. Because we want something for nothing. Because we have demagogues at the helm. Who keep telling us you have a right to this and a right to that and a right to this and a right to that. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. Since its founding in 1844, Hillsdale College has provided students with sound learning of the kind essential to preserving our civil and religious liberty. Now, I want to tell you about primus the regulation of big tech, mental illness, and the American medical insurance system. And because America's founding principles are so important, Hillsdale offers Primus absolutely free of charge to anyone who requests it. That's right. You can subscribe to Imprimis for free. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to visit inprimus.hillsdale.edu. for your free subscription. That's edu. Welcome to Hillsdale. The federal government, its programs, its redistribution of wealth, entitlements. Let me tell you something. We're living off the sweat, toil, and hard work of generations yet born. All this talk about equality, all this talk about, you know, The luck of birth. Future generations are going to run out of luck thanks to us. The Congressional Budget Office, this is in plunder and deceit, an appendage of Congress reports that without a dramatic change in federal spending, quote, 25 years from now, federal debt held by the public will exceed the gross domestic product. Debt will be on an upward path relative to the size of the economy, a trend that could not be sustained indefinitely, In addition, beyond the next 25 years, the pressures caused by rising budget deficits and debt would become even greater unless laws governing taxes and spending were changed. With deficits as big as the ones that CBO projects, federal debt would be growing faster than the gross domestic product, a path that would ultimately be unsustainable. That is the government speaking to us and to itself. Then they conclude starkly, At some point, investors would begin to doubt the government's willingness or ability to pay its debt obligations, which would require the government to pay much higher interest costs to borrow money. Such a fiscal crisis would present policymakers with extremely difficult choices and would probably have a substantial negative impact on the country. Even before the point was reached, the high and rising amount of federal debt that CBO projects under the extended baseline would have significant negative consequences for both the economy and the federal budget. And not only that, you can kiss your constitution goodbye finally. Because the government will take steps with the support of the people to do things the government is not permitted to do. And then the animal instincts cut in, the jungle instincts cut in, where people want to steal from other people in order just to survive. Oh, I know. Other talk show hosts on TV and radio, they'll sell you lollipops in two seconds. I am telling you the truth. I understand world history and I understand American history. This is a disaster. I'll be right back. You know, our nation's oldest colleges were founded to teach students to seek truth, recognize what's beautiful and hold up what is good. But the vast majority of them have abandoned their missions, locked in the grip of political correctness. They no longer allow free and open discourse. Rejecting the idea of objective truth, they peddle moral and cultural relativism. Thankfully, none of this applies to Hillsdale College. For almost two centuries, Hillsdale has remained true to its original mission, to provide sound learning of the kind essential to preserving civil and religious liberty and intelligent piety. Now, as Hillsdale celebrates its 175th year, it remains committed to offering its students the very best liberal arts education in the land, as well as to extending its mission nationwide through its many outreach efforts on behalf of Liberty.
1: Notice how you come across somebody once in a while that you shouldn't have messed with? That's Mark. And you can call him at 877 381
0: Look, I understand. I do. People think this makes for boring radio or, you know, come on, Mark, we always get these threats and so... No, we don't. This is simple mathematics, ladies and gentlemen simple mathematics. What the government does to push this down the road, down the road, until there's a massive, not balloon, a Hindenburg that's going to blow up. They use quantitative easing. What is that? Essentially, it's printing money. So the Fed, the monetary system, contributes to this. They're basically the drug dealer to the budget side, to the fiscal side, because they want to keep spending. Otherwise, they're pressured Right, You've seen that happen. And what do politicians get out of this? Votes. Politicians get no votes, cutting programs and cutting spending. But if they say, I have a new program, I have a new offer, I mean, this is the entire ideology of the left and the Democrat Party, is to spend money, to borrow money, to redistribute money, uh, and uh, they'll take us to hell. They'll just take us to hell faster. The Republicans are taking us there, too. This is why I've long detested Mitch McConnell. He's a fraud. Absolute fraud. And I can barely look at any of these Republicans with any kind of respect. The Democrats who are involved in this, I detest and always have detested. But the Republicans, they haven't learned. They haven't learned as soon as the Tea Party gave them a majority in the House, you got John Boehner. And John Boehner was a disaster. And John Boehner talks to this author, I forget the guy's name, what's his name, Alberta or something or other. And what does he say? Oh, this Mark Levin went crazy right and dragged Limbaugh and Hannity with him. First of all, I don't drag anybody with me. Secondly, I'm not crazy right. Thirdly, since when is believing in the Constitution, the limits of government, rational, fiscally responsible spending right wing. This is what they do. What do we care what John Boehner has to say? He's off pushing pot now. The guy's an absolute nut job. So the federal government now has complete control over the monetary system. It has broken all the barriers on spending under the Constitution. You're looking now at a post-constitutional period. The progressives have won. And the Republicans barely push back. And let me tell you, the handful who will in the Freedom Caucus and otherwise, they will be attacked. They will be attacked in the page of the Wall Street Journal. The editorial page is owned and bought for by the U.S. Chamber of Crony Capitalism. There'll even be a lot of supporters of this administration that'll give this a complete pass and won't even discuss it, or discuss it quickly and move along. I can't just sit quietly on this, and I'm not going to. every conservative in the House and the Senate should vote against this. And the scaremongering and fear-mongering about a, a collapse of our economy, we've heard that enough from the big spenders who are doing exactly that. Who are doing exactly that. And I know the press, the press will lurk in the shadows in order to attack the President of the United States for this. See this? Trump's going to sign this. I just want you to remember something. Not only should he not sign it, he ought to veto it. But this isn't his bill He didn't create it Pelosi created it McConnell created it The vast majority of the Democrats And the vast majority of the Republicans created it If this president Were to receive a bill That slashed spending and secured the border He'd sign that too Still He has the power to veto it The problem is He knows full well That the entire system is rigged against him But still It's unacceptable. It's absolutely unacceptable. I do not understand, which was the first chapter in Plunder and Deceit, how you can say you love your children and your grandchildren and then do this to them and their children and grandchildren in the future. The first sentence in Chapter 1 in Plunder and Deceit, I don't want you to buy. Don't buy Plunder and Deceit. I'm not hawking the book. Just listen to me. Can we simultaneously love our children but betray their generation and generations yet born? That's a fair question, don't you think? Can we simultaneously love our children but betray their generation and generations yet born? The answer, if you think about it, is no. The answer is no. This is the most selfish generation in American history Thomas Jefferson warned against this kind of immoral collective behavior he wrote we believe or we act as if we believed that although an individual father cannot alienate the labor of his son the aggregate body of fathers may alienate the labor of all their sons of all their posterity In the aggregate, and oblige them to pay for all the enterprises, just or unjust, profitable or ruinous, into which our vices, our passions, or our personal interests may lead us. But I trust that this proposition needs only to be looked at by an American to be seen in its true point of view, and that we shall all consider ourselves unauthorized to saddle posterity with our debts and morally bound to pay them ourselves and consequently within what may be deemed the period of a generation or the life of the majority. In other words, you create a debt, pay it the hell off. Don't turn it over to your kids. A few years later, Jefferson expressed even more trepidation. He said, with the decline decline of society begins indeed the war of all against all. Bellum omnimium in omnimia. The war of all against all, which some philosophers observing to be so general in this world have mistaken it for the natural instead of the abusive state of man. He's talking about the law of the jungle is what's going to take over. You can talk about the Constitution and the rule of law and contracts all you want. They're over when an economy collapses for good. And the four horse of this frightful team is public debt that is the lead horse is public debt taxation follows and by that he means confiscation and in its train wretchedness and oppression now we can't say we haven't been warned we can't say that we're unfamiliar with any of this those of you who listen to my program or buy my books you can't say you don't know about this Those of you who were Tea Party activists. Those of you in the Reagan revolution. You can't say you don't know about this. And here we are. And then those of us who understand this, then we have to listen to even more grandiose utopian designs that will sink this nation forever. College for all. Now just think about how stupid that is. Two-thirds of Americans don't graduate from college. And they're, as a statistically speaking, and they're poorer than the people who go to college. So you're going to have two-thirds of the people who don't graduate from college subsidizing the people who do. Oh, and by the way, the loans they took out voluntarily, you and I are going to be obligated to pay those. About a trillion dollars in loans. That's an impossibility. Healthcare for all, they call it Medicare for all. The Medicare program, according to the trustees of the Medicare program, they have reported to the president of the Senate, that would be the vice president, and they have reported to the Speaker of the House, that would be Nancy Pelosi, that the Medicare trust is empty in eight years. All that money, you folks have paid into it, has been removed to pay for the rest of the profligate spending of the federal government so when they say Medicare for all not only do they refuse to address the hemorrhaging of Medicare they intend to expand it to people who never paid into Medicare now just think for two seconds how's that going to work it's not it can't it's an impossibility Then they they distract us with reparations, so we're fighting among ourselves. No you pay, no you pay. Well what are you? Well who had the slaves? What's great grandfather? Oh, oh look at that. you did, no you did. Distracting us. Dividing us. Creating anger and jealousy among us. Picking in old scabs. <clears throat> that's what the left do, that's what the media do. The Republicans are perfectly happy with it. They don't want you to really analyze what they're doing. And here's the kicker. They're called compassionate. They want to take care of the little guy, you know. And then the Republicans are called responsible, you see. They're going to be responsible for this massive spending. Because, you see, in two years, uh, we've, we've resolved this thing for two years. This is a joke. we resolved anything. This is, uh, this is frightening. I don't know how more to communicate this. How better to communicate this. Nobody talks about this issue more than I over the years. Because it's boring, you know. Boring? When you lose everything, it's not boring. It's desperate. And I'm telling you that day will come. One way or another. When you have this kind of weakness... And true immorality from within, a nation destroys itself from within. And then our enemies, they leap. They leap for our throats. What happened to Athens? Where's Athens today? What happened to the Roman Empire? Where's the Roman Empire today? And I go on and on and on but we're different, you see. No, we've embraced the bad habits of the ancients. We've embraced it culturally. We have surrendered our founding principles. Not you and me, you understand. I'm talking about the collective. We do things with government spending we would never do in our private lives and then we make excuses for why that's okay. Okay. Then we're told it's compassionate, you see, and mature and responsible. The system is broken. It can't they're not going to fix the system, ladies and gentlemen. They redesigned it without amending the Constitution. This is why I'm such a rabid advocate of the Convention of States and Article five. And those so called conservatives who oppose it, they have no solutions to anything. Nothing. They're happy to get on the Senate floor a handful of them and and talk like they're homeless people with a soapbox, but they have no influence. They have no control. The federal government's out of control, and you and I don't have any control over it whatsoever. We just don't. We have to admit that progressives won. They won. I had uh, interviewed Judge uh, Michael McConnell on my program a few months back on Life, Liberty, and Live-In, and he was dead wrong. He said, well, don't be so upset. Look, we still have this in place, that in place. Okay. Look at the facts. Use your common sense. See what's taking place. Look at the proposals coming up. We don't even have a legitimate press anymore. If we had a legitimate press... They'd be talking about this not every little phony scandal that they concoct in order to take out a president. Our system our institutional system is collapsing all around us. Because slightly over a hundred years ago there was this progressive movement. It's a poison. But they have the upper hand there's simply no question about it. I'll be right back. Every human being has a common problem. How do I live well? Our happiness and well-being depends on how we answer that question. Hillsdale College President Larry Arne argues that the best book ever written on this subject is Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. And a new free online course from Hillsdale College shares Aristotle's teachings, that will help you lead the most complete, happy life possible. Register for this free course, Introduction to Aristotle's Ethics, How to Lead a Good Life, featuring lessons from the greatest self-help book ever written at levinforhillsdale.com. In just 10 on-demand videos, each only 30 minutes long, you'll learn how to confront the chief obstacles to happiness and make the choices that build good character. Aristotle presents a guide for securing a virtuous life, and if you take this free course from Hillsdale and heed Aristotle's advice, your life will change for the better. You can learn how to lead a good life just as every Hillsdale College student does. It's yours for free at levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. Oh, I know. It'll be Trump, 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 Trump. It's all their pulse. They're all involved in this. But the spending, borrowing, taxing starts in the House of Representatives. And Mitch McConnell has gone along with this for long enough, and so have the Republicans. It's nauseating to see this. Everything you're building, ladies and gentlemen, everything you're... saying, Like the cops and the firefighters out there, you have pensions, right? Well, guess what? When the fan is hit, you're not going to have pensions anymore. Teachers, same thing. What do you think's going on here? This is no joke. And what happens before a major collapse? You either have inflation or deflation. The economy's turned on its head. It's turned inside out. Money becomes useless. Are you enjoying Life, Liberty, and Levin on Fox News Channel? At 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific. I want you to listen carefully. I think it's an incredibly important show, not because of me, but because of the guests. And I think what Fox has done in allowing me to do this show is to be celebrated. There's not another show on TV like it. Again, not because of me, but because of the guests. And we've had a run of about 18 months or so. And I'm hoping we'll have a run of several more years, but I can't promise it. Not because of Fox, but because of another matter. But because of another matter. First and foremost, I've told you folks from day one, when I got behind this microphone, that you're my family. I have my flesh and blood, and then there's you. Nothing will come between us. No broadcast company. Nobody. 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 Westwood One has been terrific. Fox has been terrific. Simon Schuster's been terrific. So we shall see. I will keep you informed. Got another half year. Fox is all for continuing it. But I'm monitoring this very closely and I will let you know how this will work out. And when it will work out one way or another, trust me on this. this show my digital show my books and my Fox show I do this because I'm a believer because I'm on a mission you have to have a purpose in your life my purpose in this life is to the extent I can to advance liberty I don't know why I was born with this view and I just continue it every day every damn platform I'm on 20 hours a day that's my view Defending liberty at home, defending this country and liberty from enemies abroad. I mean, people put their lives on the line to give us liberty. The least we can do is defend it here at home. I'll be right back. You look at your media, that's not yours, uh, you know what I mean. This is the main problem we have in this country, because we don't get the truth, we don't get facts, we can't make decisions as a people. The purpose of a free press, what is the purpose of a free press? So we're going to take our time and go through that. I realized over the weekend that one of the things I hadn't talked enough about when it comes to a free press is the earliest free press in this country and why it's important to remember this because I'm telling you without a real free press the republic can't survive because we're not getting the information we need about what the government's doing instead we're getting social activism progressive ideology and democrat party agendas that's not a free press and so I realized you know Somewhat of a disservice because I didn't spend much time on this chapter, two talking about what, how did this all begin. Now, I can't go through the whole thing, but it's worth a little bit of attention, isn't it? When we watch these Sunday shows, which I would strongly discourage you from watching, or when you watch clips of them on the Internet, they're just appalling. So as I point out in chapter two in early Patriot Press, a brief examination of the early history of the American press provides critical context For comparison with its contemporary progeny and a standard by which to measure the current state and purpose of freedom of the press. Just like when you look at American history of the Constitution, this is something I decided it was time to look at. And again, it's in your unfreedom of the press. The history of the early press is thoroughly encumbered with the battle for individual liberty and free speech. Both essential elements of the American Revolution for independence. In 1810, Isaiah Thomas, a printer, newspaper publisher, author, and witness to the Revolution, published a seminal two-volume book, The History of Printing in America, with a biography of printers and an account of newspapers. I acquired the book, the volumes, the two volumes of the book, to review. Thomas was among a very few who preserved the records of the printers during the Revolutionary War period. And he wrote that, quote, among the first settlers of New England were not only pious but educated men. They emigrated from a country that would be England, where the press had more license than in other parts of Europe, and they were acquainted with the usefulness of it. And as soon as they had made those provisions that were necessary for their existence in this land, their next objects were the establishment of schools and a printing press, the latter of which was not tolerated, that is, the printing press until many years afterward by the elder colony of Virginia. All right, I'm quoting from his writings. And so, folks, a printing house was first established in 1638. You know where it was first established? Cambridge, Massachusetts. What else is in Cambridge? Yep, it. Printing began in 1639. Thomas praises Reverend Mr. Glover, For the early printing press in Massachusetts and America generally, Thomas referring to him as a, quote, nonconformist minister who left his native country with a determination to settle among his friends who had emigrated to Massachusetts. I'm quoting him, because in this wilderness he could freely enjoy with them those opinions which were not countenanced by the government and a majority of the people in England, unquote. Thus early printing in America mostly related to debates about religion, and later promoting the gospel and other books to Native Americans in their language. Now, this earliest historian, Isaiah Thomas, he wrote that the fathers of Massachusetts kept a watchful eye on the press, and in neither a religious nor civil point of view were they disposed to give it much liberty. Both the civil and ecclesiastical rulers were fearful, that if it was not under wholesome restraints, contentions and heresies would arise among the people. This is from his two volumes. In 1662, the government of Massachusetts appointed licensers of the press, and afterward, in 1664, passed a law that no printing should be allowed in any town with the jurisdiction except in Cambridge, nor should anything be printed there but what the government permitted through the agency of those persons who were empowered for that purpose does not appear that the press in Massachusetts was free from legal restraints till about the year 1755, he writes. For several years preceding the year 1730, the government of Massachusetts had been less rigid than formerly. And after that period, no officer is mentioned as having a particular control over the press. So by the mid-1700s, there was a free press in Massachusetts. Small press, but a free press. Thomas goes on, except in Massachusetts, no presses were set up in the colonies till near the close of the 17th century. Printing was then performed in Pennsylvania, near Philadelphia, and afterward in that city by the same press, which in a few years subsequent was removed to New York. Again, I'm quoting him. The use of type commenced in Virginia about 1681. 1682, the press was prohibited. In 1709, a press was established at New London in Connecticut, and from this period it was gradually introduced into the other colonies. I'm getting to a point. This is very, very important in the modern context. However, the press, that is the printing of books, pamphlets, newspapers, etc., I write, would become free from license and prior restraint years before the revolution. Before 1775, printing was confined to the capitals of the colonies, but the war occasioned the dispersion of presses. Many were set up in other towns. And after the establishment of our independence by the peace of 1783 at the end of the Revolutionary War, presses multiplied very fast, not only in seaports, but in all the principal inland towns and villages. Now, during the lead-up to and commencement of the Revolution and the eventual victory over Britain, Thomas was most impressed with Benjamin Eads. For those interested, that's E D E S. And it's all in on freedom of the press. A printer who founded and published the Boston Gazette with John Gill. Thomas writes When the dispute between Great Britain and her colonies assumed a serious aspect, this paper, the Boston Gazette, arrested the public attention. From the part its able writers took in the cause of liberty and their country, and it gained a very extensive circulation. Now, when the British troops arrived in force in Boston, Eads was able to escape with a press and a few types, as they say, and began printing from Watertown. Thomas writes, in 1776, Eads returned to Boston on the evacuation of the town by the British Army. No publisher of a newspaper, he writes, felt a greater interest in the establishment of the independence of the United States than Benjamin Eads. And no newspaper was more instrumental in bringing forward this important event than the Boston Gazette. David Copeland, a professor at at Ilan University, writes that by 1768, Eads and others, quote, synthesized all that had happened in terms of the importance of the press. The press, they said, (coughs) excuse me protects the liberties of the people. It keeps government in check. As the voice of the people, the press assures that officials will follow the consent of the governed. Now, Professor Copeland describes how the Boston Gazette declared under the pseudonym of Populus populace the following. There's nothing so fretting and vexatious, nothing so justly terrible to tyrants and their tools and abettors as a free press. The reason is obvious, namely, because it is, as it has been very justly observed, the bulwark of the people's liberties. For this reason, it is ever watched by those who are forming plans for the destruction of the people's liberties. With an envious and malignant eye, your press has spoken to us the words of truth. It has pointed to this people, their danger and their remedy. It has set before them liberty and slavery, and with the most per- persuasive and pungent language conjured them in the name of God and the King for the sake of all posterity, choose liberty and refuse chains. Professor Carol Sue Humphrey of Oklahoma Baptist University explains, and she's written a wonderful book, that historians have long studied and discussed the factors that led to the American Revolution. They have always given ample credit for the success of the revolt to the press, and particularly the newspapers, of which there were very few, for their efforts during the conflict. Even those historians who wrote in the years immediately after the war praised the press for its many contributions to ultimate victory. She explains that during the first half of the 19th century, historians emphasized the patriotism of the printers and their efforts to help America establish its republican system of government as a model for the rest of the world to follow. These scholars are often classified as nationalists or romantic in their outlook and conclusions. For these historians, the American colonies had an important role to play in making the world a better place to live through the spread of democracy and freedom, and the newspapers served well in helping to bring about the break with Great Britain that led to these developments. And Professor Humphrey argues that these historians continually emphasized the importance of the newspapers in bringing on the revolt against British tyranny and praised the printers for their loyalty and patriotism in the fight for liberty and independence. Indeed, support for independence spread from New England to the rest of the colonies. David Ramsey, also one of the first historians of the American Revolution, famously wrote in 1789, and I got his book, that in establishing American independence, the pen and the press had merit equal to that of the sword. In other words, most of the early printers, pamphleteers, and newspapers in the decades leading up to independence encouraged revolution. They likewise were supportive of the revolution once war broke out. And as the historian Ramsey noted, the role of the early pamphleteers and the relatively few newspapers, 40 or fewer by 1775, that existed in the years before the revolution. And the commencement of the war was profound. There were not only sources of information, but far and away provided the philosophical, substantive, and even polemical arguments for the causes and principles that animated the revolution and America's founding. Indeed, in many ways, they fashioned the case for liberty, independence, and representative government. Professor Copeland explains that by the last half of the 1760s, the press had become a partisan tool. Remember that? Writers regularly proclaimed their rights to a free press. Increasingly, however, the patriots, those in favor of American independence from Great Britain, tended to silence opposing voices... What seemed to be a contradiction of demands to speak freely for decades, even centuries among Britons, vanished for a time in the colonies, but there was a purpose. It could be found in the ideas of government as proposed by thinkers such as John Locke. When Americans won the revolution and freed themselves from tyranny and oppression, the press resumed its role as a partisan mouthpiece, and most citizens of the new United States adopted the motto, freedom of speech is the great bulwark of liberty, they prosper and die together. This was the groundwork that was set for what would later become the First Amendment to the Constitution. Now, there's a lot more you know, in freedom of the Press on this. The great pamphleteers, as I discussed at length by Harvard professor and historian Bernard Bailyn, who is about 96, has written some of the most spectacular books on the American Revolution. And nobody has read more of the early pamphlets than that professor. And I explain that and his viewpoints in this book as well on freedom of the press. Why am I telling you all this? We've gone from a patriot press that pushed the case for liberty, representative government, low taxes, private property rights. Those principles you see in the Declaration of Independence, they're not there by accident. The great ancients talked about them and wrote about them Aristotle, Cicero, the great philosophers of the Enlightenment, Locke and Montesquieu, among many others, Sidney. And then there were the, pris- the printers and the pamphleteers and the newspaper men who put their lives on the line. These were the principles that created this government. These were the principles that first created our society, our culture. A partisan press, partisan for what I call Americanism. About 200 years later, I'm jumping ahead. The progressive movement is upon us, more like 170 or so years, give or take. They conclude we need an objective press objective press with standards and those standards ladies and gentlemen are washed through or laundered through the progressive ideology so we need a profession you see, we shouldn't be advocates for the principles of the founding because keep in mind progressives reject the declaration and the constitution, Woodrow Wilson did John Dewey did, Ray did, they all did because it's too limiting and what's happened is since then over the last hundred years is we have a progressive press but now we have social activists in the media so we've gone from a patriot press that pushes the ideals that you see in the Declaration of Independence to a social activist press that pushes the ideals of progressivism which was imported from Germany and is basically the progeny of Marx and Hegel and Rousseau More when I return.
1: Mart Lovin.
0: 833-RING-BHN. Get 15% off your first order with promo code LEVIN. That's L E V I N dot ncom or call 833-RING-BHN, promo code LEVIN.
1: The Mark Levin Show, where we create the talking points. Call in now
0: eight seven seven three eight one three eight one one. Well, during the pet break by popular demand, let me get into this a little bit more with you. It's a very short segment, unfortunately. I just mentioned Harper Professor, historian Bernard Balin. He studied more of the early pamphlets, likely so than any other scholar. He asserts that quote. Influential in shaping the thought of revolutionary generation were the ideas and attitudes associated with the writings of Enlightenment rationalism. Writings that expressed not simply the rationalism of liberal reform, but that of enlightened conservatism as well. In pamphlet after pamphlet, the American writer cited John Locke on natural rights and on the social and governmental contract. Montesquieu and later Delholm on the character of British liberty and on the institutional requirements for its attainment. The pamphlets, of which there were several hundred between 1750 and 1776, were, Balin writes, explicit as well as declarative and expressive of the beliefs, attitudes, and motivations, as well as of the professed goals of those who led and supported the revolution. They confirmed that the revolution was, above all else, an ideological constitutional struggle and not primarily a controversy between social groups undertaken to force changes in the organization of society. He writes that because later on you would have progressive historians who said that the revolution was really a battle between social groups. It is a lie. Zola was a a battle for a constitution. It confirmed that intellectual developments in the decades before independence led to a radical idealization and rationalization of the previous century and a half of American experience. That it was the intimate relationship between revolutionary thought and the circumstances of life in 18th century America that endowed the revolution with its peculiar force and made of it a transforming event. So while the revolution was transformative it was not about the fundamental transformation of American society but the fundamental transformation of government. That is a huge difference. I'll be right back. Do you wake up in the morning feeling sluggish and have to drag yourself through your day? Do you feel bloated, tired, and out of shape? Eating healthy is a habit, but most of us don't really know exactly what we should be eating, right? How much we should be eating and how to properly prepare it. This is why I drink Field of Greens every morning before I start my day. Just one scoop of Filter Greens has a full serving of real USDA-certified organic fruits and vegetables. Helps boost your immunity using antioxidants, prebiotics, and probiotics. Now this is real food, not some fake supplement lab powder. Just read the Nutrition Facts panel on the side. Go to BrickHouseLevin.com and get 15% off your first order with the offer code LEVIN. Now, you know you're not going to start cooking fresh fruits and vegetables, so let's not pretend. Just get one full cup of fruits and one full cup of vegetables every day with Field of Greens. Go to BrickHouseLevin.com, BrickHouse, L-E-V-I-N.com, offer code LEVIN. Maybe when I retire from this, I'll... uh, Maybe I'm going to do uh, teaching, maybe a community college, who knows? Who knows? But I realized during the break I left out a very important point. So I don't want to just leave it there. So, the revolution, according to Balin, Professor Balin, the foremost authority, really, if you ask me, on the American Revolution, read more pamphlets than any other person alive was not about the fundamental transformation of American civil society as President Obama would proclaim about his own election as the Democrats are proclaiming now. Its purpose and principles were the antithesis of and incompatible with the philosophies that undergird the modern progressive movement such as those espoused by German philosophers George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Karl Marx, later American progressive intellectuals, Herbert Crowley, Woodrow Wilson, John Dewey, Walter Weil, among others that we've talked about and I've written about. <clears throat> More to the point, Balin makes the critical point that, quote, what was essentially involved in the American Revolution was not the disruption of society, this is him, with all the fear, despair, and hatred that entails, but the realization, the comprehension and fulfillment of what was taken to be America's destiny in the context of world history. The great social shocks that in the French and Russian revolutions sent the foundation of thousands of individual lives crashing into ruins, taken place in America in the course of the previous century, slowly, silently, almost imperceptibly, not as a sudden avalanche, but as myriads of individual changes and adjustments which had gradually transformed the order of society the century before. By 1763, the great landmarks of European life had faded in their exposure to the open wilderness environment of America. But until the disturbances of the 1760s, these changes had not been seized upon as grounds for a reconsideration of society and politics. By the end of 1776, Americans came to think of themselves, he writes, as in a special category, uniquely placed by history to capitalize on, to complete and fulfill the promise of man's existence. The changes that had overtaken their provincial societies, they saw, had been good, elements not of deviance and retrogression, but of betterment and progress, not a lapse into primitivism, but an elevation to a higher plane of political and social life, than had ever been reached before. It was the most creative period in the history of American political thought. Everything that followed assumed and built upon its results. And Professor Balin states that the pamphlets published before and during the Revolution and American independence were so important that, quote, everything essential to the discussion of those years appeared, if not original, then in reprints in pamphlet form. The treatises, the sermons, the speeches, the exchanges of letters published as pamphlets, even some of the most personal polemics, all contain elements of this great transforming debate. Expressing vigorous, polemical, and more often than not considered views of the great events of the time, proliferating in chains of personal vituperation and embodying to the world the highly charged sentiments uttered on commemorative occasions, Pamphlets appeared year after year, month after month, in the crisis of the 1760s and 1770s. More than 400 of them bearing on the Anglo-American controversy were published between 1750 and 1776. Over 1,500 appeared by 1783, the end of the Revolution. And we know that one of the greatest pamphleteers was, of course, Thomas Paine, although a recent immigrant from Britain coming to Philadelphia in October 1774, Paine became a decisive voice for, the Ameri- for American independence. And we've talked about him before. So I think this is very important, Chapter 2 on Freedom of the Press. So what happened? The progressive historians were not about to let the early historians write the definitive history of the pamphleteers, printers, and newspaper publishers, despite the fact that the early historians were obviously closest to the actual events. The problem for the progressives was that the early historians tell the story of the revolution and America's founding in which the principles and ideas of Western Enlightenment, individual, economic, and political liberty, lead to a mass movement, indeed a revolution, For America's beginning must be either reinterpreted to accommodate the progressive ideological project or denounced as a fraud and a sham perpetrated by self-serving commercial interests. And that's exactly what they wrote. As Professor Humphrey explains, over time later historians provided different explanations for American history that parted from the early historians and their patriotic view of the role of the press, and this is what your kids are being taught in in college and high school. For example, she writes that after 1900 progressive historians, that after the year 1900, progressive historians presented a new interpretation of American history in an era concerned with inequities and the lack of unity in American society in the 20th century. The progressive historians emphasized the presence of conflict from the initial settlement of the colonies down to the present. Most of the disagreements and arguments occurred between different classes of people, they argued, or geographic sections of the American colonies. But the Revolutionary Era represented a period of both internal and external troubles, they said. Divisions existed both between groups within the colonies and between the colonies in Great Britain. And in this environment, the press played an important role in encouraging carrying out a crusade for change. Pushing for Alterations in the relationship between colonies and Great Britain, the mass media, often help to accentuate the differences and thus help to make the divisions grow and become worse. This is the progressive narrative. And yet the historical evidence paints a picture of a colonial press that is courageous, vigorous, and openly partisan about America's principles in promoting and defending the cause and arguments for the revolution and in fact reflecting the remarkable unity of Americans during the revolutionary period. So the colonial press itself was deplored by subsequent progressive historians not for its activism but the wrong kind of activism. Professor Humphreys writes with a growing interest in the role of economics and history. More recent progressive historians have questioned the motives for the actions of the revolutionary printers. You see, nothing, nothing can be left to true history. They have to destroy everything. Several have concluded that most pressmen supported the Patriot cause for reasons of economic survival rather than any strong ideological commitment. So for these progressives, the press was part of a self-interested ruse, that successfully bamboozled the masses, I write, into risking their livelihoods, lifestyles, and even their lives to go to war against the most powerful military force on the planet? But facts are fact, and the fact is, as Professor Humphrey observes, most Americans concluded that the efforts of patriot newspaper printers to keep readers informed about the war helped ensure ultimate success by boosting the public's morale, rallying Americans to the cause until victory was achieved. The early printers, pamphleteers, and newspaper publishers were truly brave souls. They were patriots, pioneers, entrepreneurs, both leaders of and reflective of the colonists and their commitment to liberty and revolution. They risked everything to advance and defend an independent nation and civil society based on the ancient truths and observations of Aristotle and later Cicero, among others the Enlightenment principles and reasoning of John Locke and Montesquieu, among others, and specifically the moral underpinnings of natural law and natural rights, the unalienable rights of the individual, liberty, equal justice, property rights, freedom of speech, and yes, freedom of the press. In sum, this is the essence of the Declaration of Independence, the formal proclamation of the United Colonies and America's founding. All of which come under attack by the early progressives the modern progressives and America's news media today and America's news media today there's another place that understands all this other than we here me behind the microphone and you listening on your radios and listening devices and that's Hillsdale College our nation's oldest colleges were founded to teach students to seek truth, to recognize what is beautiful and to hold up what is good. But the vast majority of them have abandoned their missions. Locked in the grip of political correctness, they no longer allow free and open discourse. Rejecting the idea of objective truth, they peddle moral and cultural relativism. Hillsdale has remained true to its original mission to provide sound learning of the kind essential to preserving civil and religious liberty and intelligent piety. As Hillsdale celebrates its 175th year, it remains committed to offering its students the very best liberal arts education in the land, as well as to extending its mission nationwide through its many outreach efforts on behalf of liberty. These include free online courses, the publication of its Free Speech Digest in Primus, its Kirby Center for Constitutional Studies and Citizenship in Washington, and its Barney Charter School Initiative. Which is helping to establish classical K through twelve charter schools all over the country. Pursuing truth and defending liberty since eighteen forty-four, this is Hillsdale College. I barely touched the surface. I won't get into it any further tonight. I barely touched the surface on the history of your press, whether it's less than forty newspapers or several hundred pamphleteers. Their purpose, their goal, their aim, and thank God their success. And you'll notice that I I travel through the history of the press up to today, which I can't do right now, it just takes too long, but you can do it in the book, to our modern press, which actually embraces principles that are utterly contrary, opposite to the principles advanced by the early patriot press. Do you think they'd be promoting AOC? Or Talib Or Omar? What do you think they'd think about socialism? You'd think they'd think we have a free press today? And I also went through this with you, so we all embraced the notion that Freedom of the press belongs to us, belongs to the people. Even though a hundred and some years ago they, quote-unquote, professionalized it to make it, quote-unquote, objective, so they have, quote-unquote, standards, you know that's not true. Not today, anyway. All you have to do is spend a few hours watching MSNBC or CNN, watch the nightly news on CBS or NBC or ABC, Even watch the the morning goofball shows, the Today Show and Good Morning America. See who they've hired, mostly Democrats, mostly leftists as guests. In the final hour of the program, I've decided to take on big topics tonight, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to talk about climate change. Where does this come from all of a sudden? All of a sudden. All of a sudden, there's climate change. Twenty years ago, nobody used the phrase climate change. Aren't you curious about this? How do these things get introduced into our society, into our media, and then become a force of policy, even though they can completely destroy our economic system? How do these things come to be? And we will dissect that in the third hour. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. so tired of these uh, phony legal analysts you have no idea. Now they're dragging them all out, dusting them off, pulling them out of the closet to deal with the uh, Mueller testimony. As I understand it, I am scheduled to be on the Hannity TV show that night, Wednesday night at 11.30 p.m. Eastern Time to discuss it. I will also discuss it on Levin TV. I will discuss it behind this microphone. Um... So we will deal with that. I think I'm on the next morning on Fox and Friends, and uh, we'll also be doing Jesse Water show. That's what I think I have that right. And guess what? On Levin TV, next Sunday, at least tentatively we have scheduled, not one, but two former attorneys general. Edwin Meese, he will be the first guest we've had back for a second time. And Mukasey, Attorney General Mukasey. Two great men on Life, Liberty, and Levin to discuss what will be the Mueller testimony on Wednesday. So that'll be a really super-duper show. I hope you'll enjoy it. I know you'll enjoy it. I haven't done it yet, so. Do you wish that double chin would just disappear? Newsflash, ladies and gentlemen, people look at your jawline. It simply tells your age. Robin from Lubbock, Texas. She wrote, I put Genesil jawline cream on my neck two or three weeks ago. This is the best my neck has looked in 20 years. People told me my face looks young and I'm blown away. I don't know why people don't try this. They use MDL technology in Chamonix proprietary base. Geneselle's brand new jawline treatment specifically targets the delicate skin around the neck and jaw for tight, healthy, younger looking skin. Now, here's why I ask that. You will see results before your eyes or 100% of your money back, no questions asked. That's the key. Nobody does that. But Chamonix, call now, and the classic Genocel for bags and puffiness is free with your order. And to start seeing results in 12 hours or less, Genocel Immediate Effects is also yours, free. No double chin, no turkey neck, no sagging jawline, because no one needs to know your age. 800-SKIN-604, that's the quickest way. 800-SKIN-604. You can go online to Genesel.com, G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com. Get two free gifts and free express shipping. Call 800-SKIN-604 or go to Genesel.com. 800-SKIN-604, Genesel.com. All right, Mr. Producer, give me a good caller. Go. Sean. W-A-B-C, go. Mark, you are the heavyweight champ of the airwaves. And I could tell you, if Trump loses the immigration issue, he could possibly lose this election coming up next year. And also, we cannot keep importing the world's poor and continue to be a great nation as we spend ourselves into oblivion. You are correct, 100% correct about that. We, If we don't address the immigration issue, illegal immigration and legal immigration stopped cold...
2: We will never be able to revisit these issues.
0: I'm going to prove your point, sir. Thank you for your call. Excellent call. I'm going to prove your point. There has now a study been done. I'm trying to find it. And it's been done by what are supposed to be reputable people. And they conclude that um, based on the demographic changes we are having in this country. Actually, is that Breitbart... By Axios, not a single demographic trend favors Republicans in elections. Not a single demographic change favors Republicans. And the point is, it's only a matter of time where Republicans cannot win national elections, except by a fluke here and there. Only a matter of time. And you can see it. It's right before your eyes. You have red states turning purple, purple states turning blue, states that went for Reagan, would never go for Reagan again, including his home state of California, in our lifetime. Why do you think the Democrats are so absolutely committed to open borders? Not the country, but to their party first, as I say over and over and over again. This is why they want power forever. I'll be right back.
1: From the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. We've got
2: a couple of different issues we are talking about. Do we have a commitment to secure the border? Yes. Uh, what are the options that we have available to us? Let's make sure they work. Because we do, while we need to address the issue of immigration and the, and the challenge we have of,
0: of undocumented people in our country, we certainly don't want any more coming in. Wow! Nancy, Stretch, Pelosi, that's only 10 years ago. We certainly don't want any more coming in. What changed? The Democrats figured out. We can't win presidential elections until we changed the citizenry. And by God, we're going to change the citizenry. We're going to change the population of the country. And that is exactly what they're doing. And so now this report is out that soon the Republicans can't win. Because not just a small majority, but a large majority of immigrants into the country legal and illegal at point their children when they turn uh, a certain age and are able to vote vote for Democrats so Nancy Pelosi this is why they really kind of turned on a dime didn't they that's 10 years ago we want to give a hat tip to our friends at Right Scoop. I want to take on another issue this hour and then I want to get into a few other things I really need 10 hours to do this show, but, you know, I'm not Jerry Lewis. I can't do a marathon, but let's keep at it. Climate change. Now, folks, the climate has always changed, but what they're trying to suggest to you is there is a scientific, provable fact that you are responsible for climate change. If it gets too cold, it gets too hot. That's why they abandoned the notion of uh, global cooling and then global warming. It's just easier to... Uh, to put it all under the heading or the nomenclature of climate change. Therefore, anything that takes place in the climate or any natural disaster is your fault, and the government has to step in and stop you. And what's so peculiar is millions and millions of our fellow Americans want the government to stop them. It's bizarre, really. Where does all this come from? And again, this is from Plunder and Deceit, but ever hear of Naomi Klein? Ever hear? She's a fanatical anti-capitalist. And she proclaimed that capitalism increasingly is a discredited system because it is seen as a system that venerates greed above all else. Sounds like most of the Democrats running for president. There's a benefit to climate discussion to name a system that lots of people already have problems with for other reasons. I don't know why it's so important to save capitalism. It's a pretty battered brand. Just focusing on climate is getting us nowhere. Many, many more people recognize the need to change our economy. If climate can be our lens to catalyze this economic transformation that so many people need for other, even more pressing reasons, then that may be a winning combination. Klein added, this economic system is failing the vast majority of people. Capitalism is also waging a war on the planet's life support system. I I was stunned a few weeks ago when everybody was pointing to AOC's chief of staff, who said basically the same thing. They said, look, we got him. Look, look, look what they said. Folks, those of you who read Plunder in the Seat, and we talked about it on the air, we talked about this in 2015. In 2015, much of the so-called environmental movement today is transmuted into an aggressively nefarious and primitive faction. In fact, in the last 15 years, many of the tenets of utopian statism have coalesced around something called the degrowth movement, originating in Europe, but now taking a firm hold in the United States. The degrowthers, as I characterize them, include in their ranks none other than President Barack Obama. On July 17, 2008, Obama made clear his hostility toward, of all things, electricity generated from coal and coal-powered plants. You know these famous or infamous words. You know, when I was asked earlier about the issue of coal, under my plan of cap-and-trade, electricity rates would necessarily skyrocket. So if somebody wants to build a coal-powered plant, they can. It's just that it will bankrupt them because they're going to be charged a huge sum for all the greenhouse gas that's being emitted. See, he launched this in the United States just as he launched Open Borders, just as he launched, in many respects, anti-Semitism. That's right. That's right. I said that. Now, degrowthers define their agenda as follows. This is all in writing. Sustainable degrowth is a downscaling of production and consumption that increases human well-being and enhances ecological conditions and equity on the planet. It calls for a future where societies live within their ecological means, with open, localized economies and resources more equally distributed through new forms of democratic institutions. This sounds like Mao's Great Leap Forward, which killed, I think, 20 million people? It is an essential economic strategy to pursue in overdeveloped countries like the United States for the well being of the planet, of underdeveloped populations, and yes, even of the sick, stressed, and overweight consumer populations of overdeveloped countries. Now, that's a lot, but please take note. Degrowth, that America is over industrialized, overdeveloped. America is overdeveloped. And the only way the rest of the world. Can be free from sickness, stress, weight, overweight, and so forth, is for America to de develop. You understand? That's what this movement's all about. For its proponents and adherents, I wrote, degrowth has quickly developed into a pseudo religion and public policy obsession fact that degrowthers insist their ideology reaches far beyond the environment or even its odium of capitalism and is an all-encompassing lifestyle and governing philosophy some of its leading advocates argue that quote degrowth is not just an economic concept we shall show that it is a frame constituted by a large array of concerns goals strategies and actions As a result, degrowth has now become a confluence point where streams of critical ideas and political action converge. Degrowth is an interpretive frame for a social movement understood as the mechanism through which actors engage in a collective action. You see, folks, I understand the Marxist left. The Green New Movement is the degrowth movement aimed at overdeveloped countries, one in particular, the United States of America. That's why they're so desperate to sign on to these global agreements. Now, the degrowthers seek to eliminate carbon sources of energy and redistribute wealth according to terms they consider equitable. They reject the traditional economic reality that acknowledges growth as improving living conditions, generally, but especially for the impoverished. They embrace the notions of less competition, large-scale redistribution, sharing and reduction of excessive incomes and wealth, quote-unquote. degrowthers want to engage in politics that will set, quote, a maximum income or maximum wealth to weaken envy as a motor of consumerism, I'm quoting them, and open borders, I'm quoting them, no border to reduce means to keep inequality between rich and poor countries. So you need to understand that there is a connection between these movements because ultimately it's the same movement. It's a radical progressive movement. The degrowth movement is aimed at attacking the heart of capitalism. More and more people dependent on government. This immigration movement of late, same thing. Populate the country with individuals who will support their agenda. Not that they all understand the agenda, but they'll vote Democrat in the long run and devour the Democrat Party and take it over. In other words, like the alien. Take over the body, soul, the institution of the Democrat Party. They have succeeded. It goes on. And they demand reparations. Not just, we're not talking about race here, reparations by supporting a concept of ecological debt or the demand that the global north pays for past and present colonial exploitation in the global south. Now, French economist and leading degrowther Serge Latouche. He's one of their intellectual, you know, masterminds. He wrote, "We are currently witnessing the steady commercialization of everything in the world. It applies to every domain in this way, capitalism cannot help but destroy the planet." much as it destroys society, since the very idea of the market depends on unlimited excess and domination. And he also abhors economic growth and wealth creation, the very attributes necessary to improve the human condition in societies. He wrote, A society based on economic contraction, contraction, cannot exist under capitalism. So they want economic contraction. Now I want you to Google this. You don't have to believe me. On July 18, 2014, scores of extremist groups throughout the world endorsed a proclamation titled The Margarita Declaration on Climate Change. Subtitled, Change the System, Not the Climate. And what does it call for, among other things, an end to the, quote, capitalist, hegemonic system, unquote. Degrowth is usually characterized by a strong utopian dimension. It's found, this is them. Foundations rely on a version of economic relations based on sharing, gifts, and reciprocity, where social relations and conviviality are central. You can see this is basically Marxism. That's why I call the modern green movement is the old red movement. To implement this utopian vision of radical egalitarian outcomes, the degrowth movement employs strategies such as alternative building, opposition, in research, and research in a relationship to capitalism. They can be anti-capitalist, post-capitalist, or despite capitalism. Their words. They insist that governments establish a living wage and reduce the work week to 20 hours. Apparently discounting the fact that the population of the globe has increased by several billion human beings in the intervening years... They still call for bringing material production back to the levels of the 60s and 70s and returning to small-scale farming. You can see them dragging city dwellers into the, into the farmlands. And Again, this is just Marxism. Over 40 years ago, the great Ian Rand in her book Return to the Primitive, the anti-industrial revolution, wrote presciently that the status had changed their line of attack. She said instead of their old promises that collectivism would create universal abundance and their denunciations of capitalism for creating poverty, they're now denouncing capitalism for creating abundance. Instead of promising comfort and security for everyone, they're now denouncing people for being comfortable and secure. The demand to restrict technology, which is also part of this movement, is the demand, she writes, to restrict man's mind. It is nature, that is reality, that makes both these goals impossible to achieve. Technology can be destroyed and the mind can be paralyzed, but neither can ultimately be restricted. Whether and wherever such restrictions are attempted, it is the mind, not the state, that withers away. She says to restrict technology would require omniscience. A total knowledge of all the possible effects and consequences of a given development for all the potential innovators of the future, short of such omniscience. Restrictions mean the attempt to regulate the unknown, to limit the unborn, to set the rules for the undiscovered. A stagnant technology is the equivalent of a stagnant mind. A restricted technology is the equivalent of a censored mind. This gets to the point I talk about often. You want to restrict technology, and basically you want to destroy capitalism, you're going to destroy the creativity of the mind, the entrepreneur. Innovation. Because that's what we're talking about. You won't be free to put into motion, to tangible motion, that which you're thinking about doing. So the degrowthers would de-industrialize advanced economies, destroy modernity, and turn plenty into scarcity. In his utopian status, or what I've characterized in the past as enviro-status, degrowthers reject experience, knowledge, and science for a paradisiacal abstraction, while claiming to have mastered them all. Ultimately, for the more fanatical among them, the ultimate purpose is revolution and transformation. The environment is incidental, if not extraneous, to their central mission, except as a cunning strategy and so that's why when I hear people wow they're really about attacking the economy not really the environment um, where have these people been well they obviously don't listen to this show or read my books that's okay okay we've got more we're going to plow ahead but I just felt these topics are bouncing around out there and we needed to give them some substance we needed to explain why they're dangerous I'll be right back
1: Mark
0: well, it turns out under the First Step Act that a lot of violent criminals are being released. You know, folks, stick with me, really. I mean, I we we work in common sense here. That's what conservatism is all about when you hear people abandoning it. I'm not a conservative. uh, Where's that gotten us? It's gotten us a great country. The First Step Act, the Prison Reform Act, call it what you will. We have a lot of very nasty people being let loose now. This was backed, I believe, by the so-called libertarians in the Senate. Wasn't it, Richie V? Yeah. It was backed by the Koch brothers. It never made any sense to me. 239 over 500 people released the majority of whom were violent they're in the streets now when you add that up with illegal aliens and we don't know who's who it's going to get nastier and nastier out there it just is and uh it's unfortunate it's like this this massive debt that's piling up why well, you don't mark no 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 excuses I know. Everybody has uh, something they want from the federal government. I don't want anything from the federal government. I truly don't. Other than what the Constitution says. Other than what the Constitution says. I just want you to know that the likes of Rand Paul were pushing this bill hard. And hopefully Rand Paul will push hard to control the debt and try and take a few people with him. That's what he's good on. You know, there's certain things he's good on, other things he's awful on like this crime and punishment people do commit crimes and they do need to be punished uh, in order to protect the rest of us this is a basic responsibility of government you know the crime figures were pretty good there for a long time under Reagan they had the sentencing commission you commit a violent crime you're going to be punished for a long time well three strikes and you're out that was California that wasn't Reagan or the federal government But now the pendulum has swung the other way. With the radical leftists and the libertarians putting pressure on this administration. You know, we have two million prisoners. Well, maybe there needs to be two million prisoners. Two million people committed terrible crimes. They ought to be in prison. I don't want them in my house, do you? All right, more when we return.
1: liberal potholes, he's a truck full of hot constitutional asphalt. Mark Levin. Call him now at 877-381-3811.
0: Well, Iran now claims it has captured 17 American CIA agents, most of whom they're going to execute. The president says they're full of crap. Uh, They've also taken now three oil Uh, freighters over the last several days and uh, I think Rand Paul believes that the neocons and the Israelis and John Bolton are behind it Mr. Producer oh yes yes I'm sure of it meanwhile this fraud the foreign minister in the United States who comes across like a likable guy embraced by not just Rand Paul by some of our other friends it's really appalling how easily they're taken by this they want to believe Iran is an Islamo-Nazi regime, ladies and gentlemen. It has killed American soldiers. It has maimed American soldiers. It has blown off their legs and their arms. It has blinded them. It slaughters people. It is not a joke. It slaughters people. It is now pirating ships as if this is 300 years ago. And we're told, hey, look, uh, stay out of this. Uh, you know, it's the neocons and the, you know, the Israelis, a.k.a. the Jews. Uh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. It's John Bolton. Uh, John Bolton needs to go. You know, it's, uh, it's their fault. It's their fault. They're spitting up the propaganda of the regime in Tehran. It's grotesque. I just saw something very interesting. Interesting to me. I hadn't even noticed this before was brought to my attention, so I pulled it up. On Amazon, on Unfreedom of the Press, I'm going to read this to you. If you buy Unfreedom of the Press via Kindle, they give you $11.24 credit back to spend on your next Kindle order. Now, I don't know how long this is going to last, but if you read Kindle... If you use Kindle, I should say, if you read on Kindle, now I buy hardcover, I don't use Kindle, but maybe you do or a family member does, may I strongly suggest you act now because you'll get $11.24 credit back on your next Kindle purchase on Amazon if you buy on Freedom of the Press. They could eliminate this tonight as far as I know. They don't give us a heads up. Remember I told you about that deal they had the other day? It lasted two days and gone. This might last one or two, three days. I don't know. They don't tell you. I don't understand their business model, but that's what it is. So if you read using your Kindle and you don't have a copy of Unfreedom of the Press or you know somebody else who reads via Kindle and they don't have a copy, now is the time to get it. Now. Because if you do it, you go to Amazon.com, order your Unfreedom of the Press and you use Kindle the Kindle version, you'll get $11.24 credit to spend on your next Kindle book. That's a big deal. That's a big discount. And if you want to buy the hard copy, it's still 40% off. Our first hour, our second hour in significant part, was a discussion of information that's on freedom of the press. Very, very important historical information on the press. I did all the work. We pulled it together, all the scholarship. And all you have to do is read it if it interests you. And I hope it does. You know, it's already obvious that the left-wing media are on the Democrat side of the 2020 election. Just look at the question they ask these so, during these so-called debates. Well, when Brent Bozell and the folks over at the Media Research Center, they're fighting back. As part of the MRC's Tell the Truth 2020 campaign, they launched a war room to monitor and expose the daily lives and propaganda coming out of the media. If you go to mrcwarroom.com, mrcwarroom.com, you can see some of the coverage from their various websites. If you sign their petition, they'll send you a free Don't Believe the Fake News Media bumper sticker. It's all at mrcwarroom.com. The leftists have their own war room. In fact, they have a lot of them. CNN, MSLSD, ABC, CBS, NBC, the New York Slimes, the Washington Compost Look, they're all peddling propaganda 24-7. They're all 100% focused on replacing Trump with one of these socialist Democrats. You know, they like to call them Democratic Socialists, but they're socialist Democrats. So now our side has its own war room. Check it out at MRCwarroom.com. Sign the petition. They'll send you a free Don't Believe the Fake News Media bumper sticker. That's MRCwarroom.com. Don't forget. Don't forget. I wouldn't wait. Hop on Amazon.com and get your order of Unfreedom of the Press. If you use Kindle, you'll get $11.34 credit as of right now. I don't know what it'll be later tonight or tomorrow or the next day towards your purchase of your next Kindle book, okay? If you like your hardcover book like I do, it's still 40% off. Had a great guest on Life, Liberty, and Levin last night, didn't I? Professor Charles Kessler, Dr. Charles Kessler in government, philosophy, politics, He's a brilliant man, and he's also a very fun guy, a very smart guy, and he knows how to take complicated subjects and put them in plain English, and that's the key. And we had a discussion in part last night on Life, Liberty, and Levin about racism. I'm just going to play the one clip. It's a couple minutes, but I want you to hear it. Cut to go. We're not really talking about race now. We're talking about a radical progressive ideology. And if you reject it or you challenge it, somehow uh, the word race is introduced uh, as if if you don't if you don't agree or embrace this ideology
2: and don't conform to the agenda, then you're racist. Am I wrong? Yes. I I mean, racist is now an all purpose uh, accusation and racism is an all purpose epithet. Um, I think, uh, you know. It has to do with your view of human nature in the world From the founders point of view from the common sense point of view you expect people by nature to prefer their own You prefer your own children over other children your own family over others You prefer people you know over strangers you prefer You know those who are closer to you and more like you to those who aren't Um and that was regarded as the starting point, as it were, of moral growth and moral life. Uh, you, you, I mean, to grow, you have to learn uh, to work with others who are not your friends and not just like you. But it takes a process of trust building that people who are different from you um, can be your allies, your friends, your fellow citizens. Um, you can, you can uh, die for them in political, in war, uh, and stand stand by them as a kind of, uh, as a band of brothers, to use that language. Um, all of those great World War II movies, which showed the platoons, <clears throat> you know, made up of the Italian-American, the Polish-American, uh, you know, the Mexican-American, and so forth, were uh, living examples of, in miniature, of how... Moral growth and political life were understood to work in the past you you find that you can work with people in Larger and larger circles you expand yourself and and your circle of trust outward uh, to from city to county to state to uh, nation Uh, And there and that was you know that was regarded as a process that every generation would have to repeat because you're starting from a human nature that is selfish and prefers um, people that are more known and more trustworthy to others, to strangers who who are neither. Um, Liberalism today, political correctness today, begins from the assumption of human perfection. You know, that we're at the the end process of a historical progressive evolution and any preference for one's own is regarded as original sin, as, as a defect, uh, which must be obliterated. And so uh, there can't be any redemption for that sin. There can't be any um, absolution for it. It has to be... it's unforgivable. And it has to be stamped out in some way. And so the modern accusation of racism is essentially an accusation against human evil, imperfection, selfishness, preferring um, your own. And uh, as such, it is an endless indictment.
0: Mm-hmm. Fascinating fellow. Fascinating discussion, I thought. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. He really is quite remarkable. Very remarkable. Now... Let's move to cut one in my discussion with uh, Charles Kessler, Professor Kessler. Go ahead, Mr. Producer. The early progressives trashed the Declaration and trashed the Constitution. Is this the battle we have today, and how do they coexist, these two different, completely different ideas?
2: Well, <clears throat> we really—America uh, is in a, a very uh, odd and perilous condition because, in a way, we have— we are one country with two constitutions, and one constitution is the original constitution as amended. Um, you might call it the conservatives' constitution, and the other constitution is what the liberals call the living constitution—a phrase that Woodrow Wilson was among the first, certainly, uh, to use—and um, and. Uh, and as between the conservatives' constitution and the liberals' constitution, we are continually being whipsawed from one view of justice and one uh, understanding of what government is for to another very opposite one. But in the beginning, up till the middle, let's say, of the 20th century, um, it was thought that the two constitutions could sort of coexist because they were gradually converging uh, because the living constitution as the original progressives talked about it was an evolutionary product not a revolutionary one but one that would gradually over time uh, grow up around and incorporate anything in the old constitution that was valuable and worthy and so they didn't think that there was really a that the two constitutions would ever come to a fight ...because they would grow together. But then the 60s happened. And instead of growing together... Um, the, ...the liberals radicalized... ...and the conservatives in reaction to them... ...in their own way radicalized. And instead of a, a surrender... ...of the old constitution... ...you had a fight going on. You had a cold civil war... ...as uh, Angelo Codovilla and the Claremont Review... ...have called it. Uh, and now the uh, the contradictions between individual rights and group rights between a permanent frame of government and an ever-changing frame of government that has um, you know, is, is in a permanent state of transformation as Barack Obama, you know, when f- five days away from the election, he said you know, we're We're approaching. We're five days away from a fundamental, fundamentally transforming the United States of America. But that's what liberalism—that's what the living constitution is all about. It's—it's nothing but transformation.
0: Yep, I'm glad we had him as a guest. Absolutely brilliant.
2: We'll be right back. Mark Lupin.
0: The potheads are upset. They're saying, well, I'm for the First Step Act, Mark. You know, people use marijuana. They shouldn't be in prison. Get out of our face. Is that who we're talking about here? You need to inform yourself, my radical libertarian potheads friends. We're not talking about pot users. We're actually talking about rapists, other kinds of assault, and in some cases, murderers who are getting out under the First Step Act. So... I'm not worried about pot smokers, not even thinking about pot smokers. So calm down. Inform yourselves. By the way, during the break, I just looked at this. This is really impressive. You go on Amazon.com. I guess this is why they're so powerful. You go to Amazon.com. The list price of Unfreedom of the Press is $28, right? You order it through Kindle. It's $14.99, so you save 46% or 13 bucks. Then, in addition to that, if you order it now, you get $11.24 credit back for the next time you buy a Kindle book. So you get 46% off, it's 14.99 plus an $11.24 credit back if you act now apparently. Toward your next Kindle book. That's amazing. That's amazing. So in essence, if you really think about it, the book's like three bucks. Now the attackers will say, well, see that? Nobody wants the book. That's not it. It's it's still a New York Times top bestseller. They move in mass quantity. That's what Amazon does. They sell in mass quantity. That's why there's heavy-duty discounts. But on my book, there's this special discount and this earned credit of $11.24. So one last time, if you act quickly, I think, they sell it for fourteen ninety nine rather than $28. So that's 46% off. So they've been doing that. Plus, you earn $11.24 in credit towards your next Kindle book. So you should act. And also, for those who buy hard copy books like me, it's 40% off. That's a big deal. $16.80. So that's all good, I might add. There we go. Few things in life can change your entire outlook on the day. Call from your boss asking you to work the weekend, early construction right outside your bedroom window in the morning you want to sleep in. That'll ruin your day. How about when your check engine light comes on? That usually means thousands of dollars in repairs. Well, that's why I have CarShield on our 2010 Camaro. CarShield makes the process of fixing your car for a cover repair super easy. This is a great, great service. You can have your favorite mechanic or dealership do the work. It's your choice. And they also provide 24-7 roadside assistance and a rental car while yours is being fixed for free. CarShield administrators have paid out close to $2 billion in claims. And they're ready to help you. Don't let your check engine light change your life. Get covered by the ultimate and extended vehicle protection like I did. Call 800 Car 6000. Easy number 800 Car 6000. Make sure you mention code Levin. Or go online and visit carshield.com. Carshield.com. Use code Levin. L E V I N. And you'll save 10%. That's carshield.com. Code Levin. Or call 800 Car 6000. Mention code Levin. And you'll get your 10% either way. A deductible may apply. Well, it's been a heavy show. And I feel in my audience, you, the smartest audience of audiences, that's good. When I go to book signings, people say, you like shows like this. So from time to time, I definitely want to do it. And if you've enjoyed today's show, um, I think you'll enjoy on freedom of the Press even more. Keith, Toledo, Ohio, Sirius Satellite, go.
2: Thank you. Uh, great show, as always. I'm going to go back to your first segment. It is about power and control, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, always. And you could probably speak to this better than I could. Didn't in the, in the early 90s, didn't um, uh, Mr. Gorbachev and a few other global leaders try something like this or push an accord or formalize an agenda?
0: They always try to suck us into these deals because they don't comply with them. And uh, we are the most developed country on the face of the earth, the most, uh, actually, the most humane country on the face of the earth for that very reason. So they always put in rules to affect us. That's why I have great difficulty with these international accords and treaties that have as their purpose uh, some global intention, like we need clean air. China's exempt. India is exempt, the two biggest polluters on the face of the earth. And, of course, uh, we Americans take it in the neck. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate your call, Keith. We salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel, all you folks on the border trying to help out. God bless you. All you heroes out there, God bless you. Live in nights. Now's the night. Go to Amazon.com. Get your Kindle copy. There's big discounts. And we will see you tomorrow. I am blessed to have you, and I know it. Take care.
2: From the Westwood One Podcast Network.